Hello, in the beginning there was a big bang which led me to the creation of brief history of time. Now from beyond the grave. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-
It was a steep learning curve. Yeah, was, yeah. you've got legs, don't you? But Dad, I'm in Glasgow. Walk! <laughs> we will not be accepting the call from David. Tell him that he can make his own way home. He got himself in the situation. He can get himself out. <laughs> don't start what you can't finish. <laughs> We're dealing with a film, I mean, it's called Hackers, to state the obvious, it's, it's going to be about computer hackers. Mm-hmm. As a technician, Duke, mm-hmm. do, do you have any kind of experience when it comes to computer hacking? Or, you know, have you seen any examples or, or, or had to tell anybody off in your field of work <laughs> where people have perhaps been misusing and abusing their devices not overly i mean i have a couple of friends i've got one friend in particular who actually went on an ethical hacking course at university and he you know he described all this stuff and he you know he does coding and things and it does sound incredibly interesting but things like coding it's essentially you have to teach yourself a like a completely new language and what I find both very interesting but almost heart-wrenchingly upsetting as well is that if you have been coding away for hours on end and you think you have a finished product and, I don't know, you try and run it or whatever at the end and it doesn't work, it will just say how many problems there are with it. It won't tell you where, it won't tell you why, it will just say, oh, there's 18 bugs in this or there's 27 things that aren't that don't compute and you got to go back through the entire thing again with a fine-tooth comb and just hope to God that you find everything to make whatever it is. Yeah, unfortunately, my friend doesn't wear like a cyberpunk headsets that, co- that has like an eye covering, which... I don't know why Johnny Lee Miller had that on because again he was in a he was in a phone booth. I, like I don't, I, I get none of it. But it, I guess it looked cool and VR headsets and VR is kind of a thing now. So I guess they weren't totally far off. But to be honest, like what I find more most interesting is you know there is a VR headset that's worn by the Plague. Um, who was that played by again? What was his name? That's uh, Fisher Stevens. Fisher Stevens. Yeah, like he's like arsing around on a, a VR headset. And to be honest, it doesn't look like a far cry away from like a an oculus rift or like the ps the, the playstation vr like it's the the design hasn't changed much in over 20 years no, so it's no. uh, i thought that was pretty interesting to see that was not a prop that was a fully mm. functioning very expensive <laughs> vr headset and fisher stevens as the plague was genuinely playing uh, a game uh, back then nice. albeit probably uh, a very pixelated you know I, I just think of Doom for oh yeah <laughs> which was an 18 as you're being splattered across the screen by giant giant squares of blood <laughs> the realism it's so it's so realistic well this is it like how how in God's name did people get traumatised by red squares flying at them I'm sure it was insinuated and obviously graphics hadn't gotten that to, to the point that it's at just now and Christ knows how good gra- video game graphics are going to get further I mean I've seen stuff that the PS5 is going to churn out and it's getting eerily realistic to reality so I can, I can see how people would get PTSD from playing a horror game or Resident Evil or something on a VR headset because I, I did my mate gave me the v- his PlayStation VR and was like oh check out this uh, demo and it was for bloody Resident Evil 7 and basically when the VR kicks in, you're tied to a chair in this dank, dingy attic 
and you can look around but you can't move anywhere and then someone gets horribly stabby stabby murdered and this monster zombie person grabs your head and I was on edge for the rest of that week so thanks for that Check, always checking who's behind you in your swivel chair at work. <laughs> yep, always. It's just it's just good practice, really. I've got a, a question, just because I'm a bit in awe when you mentioned it just in the kind of pre-chat that we had mm-hmm. for the podcast. Just to show you how hardcore Duke actually is. <laughs> this guy didn't just do one mineral. And for any of our listeners from from Spain, from from America, from from LA, from from New York. I know that there's there's people listening now far in the field, which we greatly appreciate, and I hope you you enjoy the show. This guy tackled four Monroes. Duke, just very briefly, tell us what a Monroe is and why on earth you would do four in one day. A Monroe is basically a Scottish mountain whose peak is anything over three thousand feet which is something like 934 metres above sea level. Um, And in Scotland, there's 282 of them. There is uh, basically a Munro challenge, and I'm trying to do all 282. I go out most weekends and go hiking or hill walking, whatever you want to call it. And I've done four in a part of Scotland called um, Glen Shee. And uh, I'm I'm not going to downplay it um, too much, but the, the only reason I was able to do four is that it wasn't actually that difficult to do four. And th- th- that's the beauty of this. Like, there's some Munros where there is one standalone Munro, which will take it out of you and it'll take eight hours to do. And then there can be a set of like four or five, which you can do very quickly and very easily as soon as you get up. It was muddy and it was boggy, it was rocky. It was We were in the clouds for the first three Munros, so navigation was an absolute nightmare. But um, we, we got off the hill safely, just our legs were completely destroyed and I, I had the fun job of driving us two hours back down the road to get home so that was super <laughs> duper really enjoyed that all i'll say is wh- whoever came up with cruise control give that person a nobel prize because cruise control on cars oh it's so good no i just um when you were telling me uh i, I just got this memory of a story regarding stephen king who is a recovering alcoholic and he would um go into a bar and he often would meet his some friends or publisher there and he would sit down and he his friend would order one beer but stephen king would order three beers and his friend always found it strange and comical at the time even though there was obviously this kind of darker issue which he managed to get a handle off but this is a guy who doesn't want to wait for his second beer he doesn't even want to wait for his third yeah. beer you just strike me as a person Duke now that doesn't want to <laughs> doesn't want to wait for their second Monroe or even their third Monroe no. it's just I'm going to do four. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna do four. Well, this is it. Um, we we bumped into someone at the top of the first peak who had bumped and incidentally bumped into someone else and got chatting to some other hill walkers. And in the area, in total, in the Glen Sheet area, there's about nine. And they the people that spoke to the guy we spoke to, if you're still following me, um, they were gonna do nine. So we done four. And if we were feeling really psychotic slash fit, we could have maybe have battered out 
six, but then there's another three on the other side of the, the road, which would have made it up to nine. So apparently there was people that were trying to do nine, which is very impressive, but we done four and we were done. Like we, we were done by the time we got back to the car. Our legs would have failed us. What's your, your current figure? How many have you ticked off? At the moment, I've only done 36 in total so far. I tip my imaginary cap to you, sir. Thank you. That is a tremendous, tremendous effort. And <laughs> we will check in at a future point sure. to see how many more you have uh, you've done. Okay, doke. Um, because I, I, I think it's a, it's a fantastic feat. Thank you very and much, man. To be out and about in a Bonnie, Scotland, mm -hmm. and to see and experience all these peaks uh you must see some wonderful things you get to see some pretty cool wildlife and you see some pretty strange weather phenomenon that you don't usually do if you're kicking about the old smoke or whatever but um i saw uh it was about five or six mountain hare which was quite cool because you see rabbits pretty much everywhere you go parks and golf courses and stuff like that but to see rabbits that are the size of like small dogs running at like 40 mile an hour it's quite a quite a strange thing to see when you see such big things but we we heard a lot of things as well we, we heard a lot of birds which make, again, you don't get these birds, they're not like seagulls or pigeons, so you hear some really weird, almost alien noises. We heard deer, we couldn't see them, but we could hear deer, and for those of you that don't know, deer bark, which is the weirdest sound you'll probably ever hear. Deer bark, and they kind of, I mean, they kind of growl and call on each other, but it's honestly, like, you can look it up online, like deer bark, and it's the strangest noise ever. Okay, I, I feel like uh, after you've now said this, when I'm editing, so obviously listen out, I'm now going to have to put a sound in <laughs> of, a deer, of a deer barking. Now, it's nothing like woof woof. <laughs> like, it's, it's not as if they're trying to do like an impersonation of like a, I don't know, a bloodhound or whatever, but it's a, yeah, it's a very strange barking noise. Oh, sounds eerie mm. i am I'm, I'm going to make it my mission to actually put that in <laughs> okay just before just before we actually start talking about our film So like I said, we are, we're dealing with hackers from 1995. Our director is Ian Softley. I was aware of Ian Softley prior to hackers because in 1994, his directional debut was a film called Backbeat, mm -hmm. which starred uh, Stephen Dorff as Stuart Sutcliffe. Stuart Sutcliffe was the fifth member of the Beatles. Uh -huh. And he pretty much not abandoned them, but he just had a different pathway to life. He was much more into his art and the kind of uh, Berlin art circuit. And he just, his his life ended up somewhere else rather than the Beatles. Mm -hmm. and back, Backbeat explores the Beatles in, in Berlin. It looks at the art scene. It looks at 
their late night club performances and it particularly explores the relationship between Sutcliffe and John Lennon who's played by superbly by Ian Hart. Hmm. Most people recognise Ian Hart as Professor Quirrell from Harry Potter oh, yeah. and the Philosopher's Stone. Or if you're listening in America, the Sorcerer's Stone because <laughs> we don't they don't know what philosophers are. <laughs> I'm sure they do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it does seem like a bit of an odd thing to change for American audiences. I, I thought like I, I'm sure Americans are fully aware what a philosopher is, but nah nah, we'll change it to Sorcerer's Stone. Right, okay. Backbeat is very much centred around kind of youth culture. Backbeat is getting filmed in 93, released in 94, and it does very well at at Sundance. It gets quite a lot of acclaim. It explores the early kind of creation of of pop culture, the rise of the Beatles. You've got Hackers, which is shot in 94 and released in 95. And it's also exploring that kind of youth culture and you've got our outlaws or who are the hackers they're the good guys the the police the the secret service who are trying to track them down they're the bad guys and we're really looking at the kind of rise in the the digital age because i mean 95 and unless you were are working for some sort of major computer company then not that many people are are aware of the internet i mean the internet is there yeah but they're not aware of it they're not really sure what it's for i mean that's still a a few years off ian softly would also go on to direct the wings of the dove in 97 and k-pax with jeff bridges and kevin spacey in 2001 and after that his careers he's he's just maybe not done as much work as what you would expect especially after the kind of stuff that he was doing in the 90s. He made The Skeleton Key with Kate Hudson, which is not a very good horror film. And he adapted Inkheart, which is the first part of a a trilogy that never actually ended up getting made, despite the fact that Inkheart was actually... It's it's not a bad film. Brendan Fraser's in it. Helen Mirren's in it. Very good idea. Andy Serkis is the villain Mm. about people who can who who when they read books aloud the characters from those books come out and are transported out of the book hmm. okay it's, it's quite a nice kind of kind of premise but i would i would say that for me and softly's career the, the standouts are are definitely backbeat and, and hackers which is now really viewed as a as a cult classic it's written by Raphael Moreau, who, I mean, if you look at his career, there's nothing notable about it, really. <laughs> he, he wrote the sequel to Carrie, uh, which is called The Rage. Other than that, nothing major at all. Wow. It's surprising because Raphael Moreau was, he was really passionate about the kind of hacker community. Mm-hmm. He, he spent the best part of about six months researching this film. Because he he knew that there was a a story there to tell. Mm -hmm. And probably because the film was not necessarily a massive box office hit or 
or didn't really set the critics on fire, even though we're, we're going to see some positive kind of reviews for it later on. The budget was 15 million, box office was only just over seven and a half. I mean, it's not a lot. No, yeah, it's a significant loss. It is a significant loss, and the marketing behind it, there was perhaps some issues as well. They, they certainly didn't capitalize on the soundtrack until after the film was released and I mean, we'll talk about the soundtrack later on but the soundtrack's phenomenal for this film and actually could really have, have bumped up what they were kind of taking because there's a lot of people that advocate and, and talk positively about this movie Mark Kermode is, is one of them and I mean, it's certainly it's a film that, that I saw when I was 15 you you were 3 at the time Doug so yeah. this is you seeing it for the first time yeah <laughs> I I remember seeing this and just thinking, wow, I understand what it's trying to say. I get its look. I get I get the music, and I really did buy into that idea that this is a youth kind of culture film mm-hmm. institution. We've got a major institution. We've got United Artists, MGM. In terms of genre, if you actually if you if you look at this on IMDb, if you look at it on Rotten Tomatoes. It's quite unfairly labelled as a crime drama slash thriller, and it's not. No. If you talk to anybody that knows this movie, gets this movie, this this is a this is a cyberpunk film. This is a cyberpunk fantasy, and it's sci-fi. It's also it's a bit dystopian in a way. That a bit, yeah. This is because it's 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 not supposed to be taking place today. It's supposed to be taking place tomorrow. Mm. It's supposed to be the future. And you've already mentioned there's the VR headset. There's the headset that Johnny. Um, I was about to say Johnny Depp. Johnny <laughs> was wearing. Yeah. There's all this kind of stuff that's thrown in there that certainly shows us that this is this is what's maybe to come. Mm-hmm. I've got a challenge for you. All right. Now, we know that Doug can do fantastic voices. Krusty the Clown being one. <laughs> Douglas Renham being another. What I thought was... Oh, no. we, we've not had you do the most obvious thing, which is the trailer voice guy. There's a few ways you could do this. So I'm just going to set the challenge up. I wanted you to tell me the synopsis in your best trailer voice guy voice challenge accepted I'll, I'll start doing the warm-up the vocal warm-up like uh, will ferrell does at the start of anchorman like oh, oh, oh. <laughs> the arsonist was denied a bank loan <clears throat> all right okay a young boy is arrested by the u.s secret service for writing a computer virus and is banned from using a computer until his 18th birthday years later he and his newfound friends discover a plot to unleash a dangerous computer virus. But they must use their computer skills to find the evidence while being pursued by the Secret Service and the evil computer genius behind the virus. That was pretty good. It's not bad. Why, why, is it that, why, why is it that when we think of Trailer Voice Guy that we automatically lower our voice? I've recommended this quite a few times, maybe on, I'm not 100% sure, maybe off the podcast. There's a documentary that was produced by John DiMaggio, who does the voice of Bender and Jake the Dog and stuff like that. So he produced a documentary about voice actors and voice acting called I Know That Voice, and it's super underrated. Like, it's really, really interesting. I first watched that based on your recommendation, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, it's really, really cool. You learn quite a lot of things, and it's just, I just find it, 
fascinating to see people doing to, to actually see the the actors doing the voices and it sounds exactly the same like there's sometimes editing but there's not a great deal of editing done but but yeah basically if you go onto youtube and type in either great big story or uh, meet the epic voice behind the movie trailers something along those lines um you'll actually find the guy that does movie trailer voices and it's quite funny because he doesn't put that voice on like not 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 a lot he doesn't add a lot to his voice like his voice is just that naturally deep um which uh-huh. i found really really interesting but it's it's just a short like three minute video it's definitely worth a watch does he sip a 30 year old bourbon and smoke a havana cigar at the same time or you know, just is that is that his warm up? Um, to be honest, that sounds like a pretty pleasant warm up. If I'm being perfectly honest, Do, doing that before every shift, I can think of worse ways. But yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I can't remember the video. Maybe he goes through what his uh, his, his warm up is. But I'm sure, I'm sure he's in the the I know that voice documentary as well, which it would make sense because. I mean, I don't think you hear... There's not a great deal of voiceovers in movie trailers now, and there hasn't been for quite a while, but definitely, like, up until maybe the early noughties, you still had... I don't know, I could be wrong. I mean, maybe there's still... Because you get different trailers in different countries, so I don't know, maybe places like uh, America or um, other parts of Europe might still have sort of voiceovers, but I just know that any kind of film trailer I've watched recently, it's just been clips and scenes and sound bites from the actual film and in the case of some filmmakers a lot of deleted scenes which never made it into the film which always annoys me <laughs> yeah yeah always that annoys happened me. in star wars the force awakens yep. with kylo ren yeah which yep. was a very yep. very cool thing but it just it was never 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 in the film but yeah anyway ended up on the cutting room floor yep the defendant dave murphy who calls himself Zero Cool has repeatedly committed criminal acts of a malicious nature. This defendant possesses a superior intelligence, which he uses to a destructive and antisocial end. His computer virus crashed 1,507 systems, including Wall Street trading systems, single-handedly causing a seven-point drop in the New York stock market. Dade Murphy, I hereby fine your family $45,000 and sentence you to probation, under which you are forbidden to own or operate a computer or touch-tone telephone until the day of your 18th birthday. I think let's start with the the cast, Mm -hmm. because you were talking about this just in the kind of pre-show chat the, you're quite surprised you've got uh, a young Johnny Lee Miller mm-hmm. not not his not his first role but he's probably I think about 23 24 mm. and obviously the you've got a tendency normally to employ older actors to play people that are 17, 18 in films anyway. Yeah. Angelina Jolie is about 20. Matthew Lillard, who plays serial killer, he is 25. Mm. And g- genuinely, like, the, the only person who's playing off age is Jesse Bradford as uh, Joey. Yeah. Uh, and he was he was uh, 15, 16 at the time of, of making the movie. All right. I am always pleasantly surprised by Johnny Lee Miller in this film. One his accent and and two just the 
even the kind of chemistry that he had with Angelina Jolie. What do you what do you think? I'd probably agree with both those things. Um, I'm not gonna lie. Like the first time I watched Train Spotting um, with Johnny Lee Miller in it, like I genuinely thought he was a Scottish actor, but he's he's not. He's from down south. He's from England, Englandshire, is he not? Yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, he's from England, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm, I myself, I'm not American, but you watch enough TV and films, you can, even if you're not American, you can point out a crap American accent. But I thought, yeah, that was, that yeah. was actually pretty spot on. It wasn't too, it wasn't too bad, but I, I thought he was... Yeah, I thought he'd done a pretty he done a pretty good job in this. He he seemed to understand the gravity of the situation he was in. You know, he, his character obviously still wanted to continue hacking, and you know they they kind of touch on the subject of hacking that it is sometimes more of a curiosity thing just to see if you if they can do it, and then you get people that do it for financial gain or just to to watch the world burn, as Michael Caine said. I, I, again, this is just going back to YouTube very briefly, but I'm sure I watched that or I watched a good chunk of a video about hackers and apparently you get different different kinds of hackers so you get ethical ones and then you get ones that do try and extort you for money and then you get ones that are kind of in a bit of a gray area in between that will maybe extort you for money but then like give you really good you know really help out with the security system for your company during the day but then try and rob you blind at night kind of thing so yeah it's um i think they got that part right in the the film the sort of fluidity and the almost like there is no kind of camaraderie but i guess sometimes there is and you know there, there was there's quite a lot of competitiveness in the film as well between the hackers like who could who could get the biggest score who could hack into the the most uh I don't know, the most elaborate or the most difficult system or whatever. That's how Joey ends up in trouble because most hackers, especially in the 90s, it's almost like stems from curiosity to see if they could they could get into the systems. Not necessarily for anything major, but to understand the systems. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, these, these people are curious. They want to know how things work. And in order to do that, a simple method would actually be, and you see it in the film, is uh, phoning up a major company and pretending to be either uh, some kind of um, outside security firm or another company that is needing to gain access to view a particular file and they would often target security guards late at night and they would just get them to to read the modem numbers so that they could dial in and get access to the system that way because you know these guys don't really they're not really trained to look to look out for people like this and they're not thinking like that as well somebody phones up and says you're this at that time you just kind of believe them we see johnny lee miller's character as as dade murphy he he does that to get access to a television network so that he can put his favorite episode of the outer limits on tv <laughs> it's quite nice because although it seems far-fetched that's that's a genuine way that hackers would would get into systems mm-hmm. would literally phone up they would get the number and um, that allows them to, to kind of dial in. Yeah. Why did he come to you? I got a record. I was zero cool. Zero cool? Crashed 1,507 systems in one day? Biggest crash in history. Front page New York Times, August 10th, 1988. I thought you was black, man. Yo, man, this is zero cool! Oh shit! This far out. This is zero cool, man. Oh. <laughs> Yo, that's great. There goes MIT. I'll make it up. Yeah? How? I'll hack the Gibson. 
Dude, they'll trace you like that, man. The cops are gonna find you. They're gonna find you with a smoking gun. Fucked if I care, man. Look, even if you had the password, it'll take you 10 minutes to get in, and you still gotta find the files, man. I mean, the cops will have you in five minutes. Oh, wow, we are fried. Never send a boy to do a woman's job. With me, we can do it in seven. You both screwed. I hope we do it in six. Jesus, I gotta save all your asses. I help. We could do it in five minutes now. Okay, let's go shopping. <laughs> Boom! I quite like the cheesy names. You know, <laughs> so, so, so hackers have all got... I don't want to say code names. There is a term uh, for it. Hand, uh, uh, handles. handles, yeah. Handles, yeah. that's it, yes. Hackers have all got handles, and Johnny Lee Miller is Dade Murphy. He's actually got two, mm-hmm. and... His most famous handle is Zero Cool, which he went by when he was younger prior to... This is this is what got him arrested and he was banned from using computers until his 18th birthday. And then in order to kind of form his new identity when he moves to New York, he stops uh, becoming... He's, he's no longer Zero Cool, but he becomes Crash Override. Uh, you've got Angelina Jolie as Kate Libby. She's Acid Burn. Mm-hmm. You've got Matthew Lillard, people know from from Scream, for example, mm-hmm. he's serial killer. But he, his character is also called Emmanuel Goldstein. And Emmanuel Goldstein was a very famous hacker in the 90s. Ah. And he also wrote and edited the magazine uh, 2600, which is the Hacker Quarterly. So not only was he a consultant for the movie, uh-huh. but we're watching things that he's done, but they actually use his name for Matthew Lillard's character, ah, Emmanuel Goldstein. Very cool. You, what is your name? Uh, Emmanuel Goldstein, sir. You, however, are not on my list. Whoa, this isn't woodshop class? I screen tested for Johnny Lee Miller's part. I was the in-room reader for the auditions in New York City. And during that process, Ian and I became buddies. And the more I worked with these women for their auditions, the more he's like, oh wait, you could be that guy. So I actually, they flew me out to LA to screen test for that part. I sadly didn't get it. It's, it's uh, John Lee Miller who got that part. God bless him. So what do you think, I crashed your place tonight? <laughs> what is it with this guy? His parents miss Woodstock and he's been making up for it since. I had this thing with like a toothbrush because I had this backstory that his mom and dad were horrible so he always carried his toothbrush because he never knew where he was going to sleep and that became like a thing and I just I love the fact that you could bring anything you wanted to that kind of experience and we they would weave it into something. Night Con King, can I crash your place tonight? Again? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> such a young actor and I watched that performance I was like oh my god what was I doing I was just chewing scenery left and right and I have this theory I mean I have this theory about acting that energy is electric to watch and you know back then it's unbridled energy and I think that that worked in a way you know you had these two lovers these you know the central characters and you know there was these weird characters on the outside that were fun Lawrence Mason his character is Paul Cook but People will remember him as uh, Lord Nikon. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rene Lu, uh, Santiago, he is Ramon Sanchez. 
also known as the Phantom Freak. Uh, Rinaldi Santiago, he's had some weird names. He was in Con Air and he played a character called Sally Can't Dance. <laughs> but my all-time favourite out of all of the handles, I mean, just it has to be Fisher Stevens because it's the contrast in his between his actual character name, which is Eugene Belford. <laughs> Eugene. I mean, obviously they're 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 going for that stereotypical kind of this guy didn't have any sex before he was eighteen. <laughs> he was a total nerd, but but Eugene Belford is the plague, mm-hmm. and oh, that what a great handle that is. We've got this quite young kind of cast. We've got this really good, I think, chemistry between Zero Cool, Johnny Lee Miller, and Angelina Jolie as Acid Burn. And the movie was actually sold on their chemistry. Oh. And to show you how good their chemistry was, I mean, they actually did get married. They were t- they were together together for four years as well. I mean, Angelina Jolie, she's known for often being pretty committed to films. I've always been a fan of actually her kind of earlier stuff. Not not necessarily the, the stuff that she does now, mm-hmm. like... Melissa Finn, you know, going but she got an Oscar for for Girl Interrupted. She was in The Bone Collector with Denzel Washington. Oh, yeah. Gone in sixty seconds mm-hmm. with the hurricane that is Nicolas Cage and the Shakespearean actor that is Sir Vincent Jones. She's she, I mean, she's twenty years old in this, and she's she really is kind of committed to the to the film and the concept because she cut her hair off. Got it all, got it all punked out because Ian Softley basically said to her, "Look, we want to reflect the kind of the youth at the time. Mm-hmm. We we want to punk." He, he literally said to her, "We want to punk you out." And she came came back in, hair was cut, all the piercings. She, you know, those are not like like clip ons or anything. Mm. She got all the piercings. She got tattoos. And I think she looks great in that film. To be honest, obviously, I hadn't um, I hadn't seen this film until you suggested it. You know, a lot of actors that are around today, like like big big names. Um, you know, a lot of them mm. kind of started out in these what would be deemed as sort of smaller roles. But you can even kind of tell, you know, not just Johnny Lee Miller and Angelina Jolie, but quite quite a lot of the other cast members in this. That you know, they they always they, they seem to have gone on to sort of bigger things. But you can sort of see that by their performance and this and yeah it didn't make its money back and it's probably i mean i'm not gonna lie i I hadn't heard of this film until you had um, suggested that we'd you know do it but yeah like the the performances that they all kind of put in it just fits the story and it ties in very well with the the whole film full stop so it obviously shows that as as actors you know they can be adaptable and you know they can act in a certain way i think that as well for that kind of for that young cast I mean, there's nobody that, that comes out even as a kind of weak link or anything. Not really. I think that everybody, everybody holds their own. I mean, this is shot before Trainspotting. Yep. But Trainspotting actually came out first. Okay. Yeah. And that's that's just the way that things usually happen and it can be with distribution and stuff. But Danny Boyle, who was friends with Ian Softley, he knew that Ian Softley was working with Johnny Lee Miller. Mm-hmm. And... Danny Boyle asked for some raw footage of Johnny Lee Miller as Zero Cool and he watched it and purely based on that raw footage, Johnny Lee Miller got cast as Sick Boy. Alright, okay, wow. It shows you that directors can see something yeah. in you. You know, the 
they can they can see that you're you're right for a part because you you couldn't get two characters that were any different. No. You've got yeah. heroin addict and dealer and general vagabond sick boy <laughs> versus <sighs> zero cool who who doesn't conform to normal in society. Yeah, you know what? There are there's probably some similarities between the two characters, but for completely different reasons. So I don't know. I would say that Dave Murphy was more more reluctant. Yeah, he doesn't want to conform to society, but that maybe that's more kind of just like a I don't know. Maybe that's just the sort of youthful side of his character because you know everyone's everyone's been a teenager or is a teenager will be a teenager at some point and uh what a laugh that was being a teenager but yeah it does like when you're a teenager you think the world's out to get you kind of thing and you know you want to you sometimes want to kind of prove yourself or fight against it or just push back kind of thing but i think there was more of that with dade murphy whereas i think sick boy was you know obviously his character's supposed to be older and as a heroin addict and yeah, is probably just a little bit more comfortable with not not liking the world. So th- those are the similarities. Yeah, they both probably aren't yeah. big fans of society. I think you're onto something there. I think uh, yeah, Dade definitely fights against it. Yeah, because I mean, you you can see that even when in the scene where Angelina Jolie pranks him and tells him to go to the swimming pool that's on the roof. Yeah, and then his way of getting back at her one. He wants to spend more time with her because he's obviously attracted to her. So he, he hacks into the enrollment system and put, gets put in her English class. But he also schedules a fire alarm to go off and not just a fire alarm because it triggers the sprinklers mm. for which he's got all the timing sorted and he's got the umbrella that he puts up as well. Mm. And so, so he gets his, his revenge because he gets soaked on the roof when the heavens open and he he soaks her and it it seems quite petty and a bit juvenile and a little bit cheeky but these are actually masking the the bigger skills that he kind of has and then you've got sick boy who is completely self-centered and he sick boy is a real nasty piece of work actually when you look at him Mm -hmm. I think there's there's definitely something to be said in that I can probably see why looking at the raw footage that Ian Softley has given Danny Boyle, Danny Boyle was saying, Do you know what, I can I can see this this guy playing playing sick boy no absolutely yeah this is it like i said earlier like a a good a good actor can be adaptable so if they're looking for certain things from other films they need to incorporate that but into different characters and different stories so you want punk you want rebellious yeah i can pull some of that from that character i've done but it has to be in a different setting and a different scenario kind of thing i'm going to briefly mention this is slightly ahead of schedule because normally it's much later in the the show that we talk about like favorite parts and stuff like that, but but just in terms of it naturally kind of occurs very very early on. And again, we were we were talking about this, and I was just kind of pointing out some stuff. But when we see Zero Cool on the plane, and we've got the overhead shot of New York, we've got a helicopter shot, and it's just it's essentially just mapping out the city of New York. Mm-hmm. But because Zero Cool's looking out the window, we're supposed to be seeing from his point of view. This is what he's looking at. And Ian Softley did something that, for me, when I rewatch this, when I look at it, I, I still think that it, it is a superb transition shot, but also 
it's so clever to give us insight into the mind of Zero Cool and how he sees the world. We move slowly away from the overhead of New York and we transition into a computer circuit board. And that's that's a miniature circuit board that's been built by the designer, John Beard. And he does a lot of the kind of practical effects of for the film as well as some of the kind of visual stuff as well as, as well along with Peter Chang. Peter Chang will some some people will know because he set up Double Negative, which Double Negative do all the visual effects for Christopher Nolan. The people behind the scenes that are working in on this movie, they they've went on to map some of the biggest special effects films like gravity films like inception but you've you've got this miniature circuit board that's been built to match the city of new york from above and i quite like this idea that you transition from the building to the circuit board to show you the city that never sleeps like a circuit board is constantly got all these electric pulses going through it and electric pulses as they zip through the the wires through the circuitry they look like the taxis and cars and for me it's a really cool and exciting shot because it shows a parallel between the two worlds mm-hmm. you've got what's in their head what the inner life of the hacker looks like and how that merges with the real world if that makes sense totally agree it was actually quite a quite a cool shot quite a quite an interesting transition shot so yeah so was that i take it was that one of your kind of uh one of your sort of favorite parts yeah yeah it was to be honest i just i had never seen a shot like Mm. that before and there's some great shots on film where you've got perhaps like extended takes orson wells did a i think a a six minute tracking shot before the opening of one of his films with charlton heston the whole idea that the, the the camera just follows all these characters up to the point where a car bomb explodes it just shows you it's tried to show you everything in kind of real time mm-hmm. just this beautiful transition shot showing you the two worlds interconnecting i watched the film came out in 1992 that i really i really rate this film highly and it's called sneakers mm-hmm and it's got Robert Redford in it, Ben Kingsley, River Phoenix, Dan Aykroyd. Oh, wow. And these are ex-CIA operatives. They're hackers themselves, and they, they're employed by companies to hack into their systems. They'll go to a bank, and the bank will pay them 15 grand. They'll then break into the system, and they'll show all the flaws to the bank the next again day. And they'll say, your security team need trained because very much like how Dade gets control of the TV network, that happens in sneakers as well. Ah, uh, right, okay. And it's because they phone up, but they're on the landline outside. They've hacked into that. Mm-hmm. And so they're phoning, they're setting off alarms, and they convince the security guy not to, to phone anybody, not to phone the police, even though the alarms are going off. Yeah. Because in the 30 seconds that they're able to kind of talk him down, they've hacked in and they've reset the system. Ah, right, very cool. But when you see them doing hacking on in sneakers, it's in a way where it's just a guy sat in front of a computer yeah. typing code. That's all it is. It's just code on screen, flashes of numbers, flashes of images. There's nothing visual about it whatsoever. Yeah. It, it's not exciting. 
to watch. Filmmaking makes it exciting. Mm -hmm. But I think the reason I like shots like this and to show those parallel worlds is that Ian Softly really wanted to visually take what was going on inside the hacker's head and what was going on inside a, inside a computer, not what you see on a screen. And he wanted to show the audience that. And to me, hmm. that's what made it stand out. That's what made it kind of visually exciting. Yeah, and you're quite right. I mean, it sounds like uh, Sneakers had just the, the more realistic approach rather than the more visually appealing approach. And, you know, you, you, you get that a lot definitely in hackers like everything is incredibly visual and yeah it makes things a bit more interesting because like like you said real life hacking is probably just sitting in front of a the computer screen with the command console open and you're just just typing in code really there's not really anything very appealing interesting or sexy about that so it's just kind of like yeah <laughs> this this is this is what <laughs> hacking is sorry to burst your bubble there's nothing, there's nothing sexy about this whatsoever <laughs> Soundtrack. Do you know, there's a little bit of parallel going on here with the train spotting soundtrack. A wee bit, yeah. They're not too distant from each other, are they? No, no. I'm, I'm wondering if uh, if Danny Boyle was taking up some liberties from his friend. <laughs> you've got Underworld. You've got The Prodigy. Yep. You've got Massive Attack, Stereo MCs, Orbital, Portishead some really well-known kind of bands and even though the, when the film came out in 95 they kind of missed the mark with to me the awesome music because they didn't release an official soundtrack and it, it kind of took the small fan base that was there at the time to get that soundtrack up and rolling mm -hmm. i really like the soundtrack for this film yeah i like the speed at which uh, you know like you've got voodoo people from the prodigy and one love and those will be playing during hacking sequences yeah. or mo montage sequences. And just, yeah, I really like the speed of it. It just complements it. Well, this is it. I mean, the, the music probably reflects the, the sort of a lot of the themes in the film as well. That, you know, it's, I, I'm a great believer, and I've probably said this in previous episodes. Sometimes you can date a film really badly if you just use lots of pop culture references and things that are around at the time. However, if you can get past that, if you understand wholeheartedly that you're watching a film from the mid 90s then you can expect a lot of music from the mid 90s and this film like you said is really quite it's really about sort of kind of youth culture it's kind of the the target audience for this film was probably you know 18 to you know late 20s early 30s you know oh, I, th I, I, I think you can go lower i really oh, do. You pr I think pro you probably can. can but Obviously, the kind of people that would be going to see this film would be listening to that kind of music and the sort of thumping bass and the sort of dance and the the quickness of it all really suits the the overall kind of theme of the film that, you know, everything has to get done quick. you got to get in and out before you get caught kind of thing. And his 90s out the wazoo. You need an army. That's it. An electronic army. If I were us, I'd get on the internet, send out a major distress signal. Hackers of the world unite. How are you going to take care of the cops? Yo, I'm blowing up. It's Kate, Grand Central. Let's hit it.
I think most of the people they're 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 playing like seventeen, eighteen year olds, and and Joey's the youngest. But one of the the Joey character is actually based on one of the the main consult uh, consultants for the film. That's a, f- a hacker called Nicholas Jarecki who has went on to be a consultant for other com- uh, computer themed films, oh. and he's also he also made the award winning film Arbitrage as well. Right. He was hanging out with people like Emmanuel Goldstein, and he was he was fifteen, and he's he's getting brought in as a consultant because he's doing the the what we talked about earlier he's doing the curious hacking mm-hmm. dialing into systems so he can understand them not necessarily to do anything malicious like in in the film there's the the kind of main plot centers around joey stumbling across the leonardo da vinci virus yeah. that the plague is using to extort the company that he works for because he's he wants to create an environmental disaster Mm -hmm. and in in case in case that plot sounds similar richard pryor was doing something very similar in superman 3 in 1980 where where he was he was the computer hacker and he was sending oil ships all to kind of one area so joey kind of stumbles across that but he he really does kind of represent the peop the, the real people who were being curious. So like, yeah, the fourteen, fifteen year olds who were going to hacker conventions and they knew that computers were exciting and there was this kind of life there. Mm-hmm. This I don't want to use the term underworld, but no, but it, it's almost like a how how would you? Well, I, I would describe it as a little bit underground, but that's probably why it was partly quite appealing and you know it fits in really well with the whole cyberpunk cyber fantasy kind of thing that things were still at that time a little bit maybe there were just things were becoming a little bit more mainstream with computers and people having more of them in their homes and stuff like that but i think like the whole hacking side of things was probably quite underground so not, not probably not necessarily underworld but probably just a little bit more niche and maybe a little bit more occult yeah. at the time and then obviously things became a yeah. bit more mainstream that's that's actually a good way to put it because it, it, it's it's risky i mean they, these these guys they're they're you know there was there was people out there they were looking for the rule breakers for the people who were who were not conforming and what I kind of like about the film as well is we've we've talked about or you know mentioned things that you see in the film that hackers are actually doing. Like see the see the dial tone. Mm-hmm. When we were we mentioned the idea about about phone booths and phones. I mean that was that was one of the first hacks that people worked out is that if you use the phone, it has a dial tone and it recognizes based on the the sound of the dials. And obviously you would put over here, it might be like 20 pence, 50 pence and to use a phone. In America, it might be a quarter. You've got to put your money in in order to make your phone call. But one of the early hacks is that they were recording the the dial tones. Mm-hmm. They were, they'd hack the dial tones so that when they were picking up phones and they, they, they called it the, the red box and the blue box. If you played the dial tone, then that was your phone call paid for. I have to admit, when I saw that, I thought that's actually quite. It's kind of cool and kind of clever. Like I get, I get around for something as simple as that. Yeah, and something else that we kind of take for granted today is like, see passwords. 
obviously we're told you know we've got passwords for everything yeah you've got You've got a passcode or a password for your phone. You've got a password for your online banking. You've got a password for your email. You've got a, a password maybe just to log into your, your computer. Some people have got passwords for their cars, for their security systems. Everything is protected by passwords. And yet in the film, we see something really quite famous, which is called the dumpster dive. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is something that hackers would do is that they would go to the dumpsters outside the company that they wanted to get they wanted to get into and they would dive into the dumpster and they would get the paperwork. Oh wow. Because in the paperwork you would actually find people's passwords. And it's like obviously we're taught not to write anything down or anything yeah. like that. But you would gen- you would have pages and pages of stuff that would would give you a key to get into mm. their system. Yep. And it was all just tossed out. Yeah. Which it's quite ironic because now nowadays, and you're right. For a while, you were highly. It was highly recommended that you'd never wrote any of your passwords down, just in case someone found out. But to in order to remember all the passwords for all the different online accounts that you need, because a lot of the time you can't order something online with a certain website unless you have an account. Like, well, Amazon's an example, mm. but like there's lots of other ones as well if you think about it this way if you had a pa- the same password for absolutely every account and someone figured out what that one password was they would be able to get access to so many different things whether they were really important or really not so it's now recommended by some people it is recommended that you find a safe place that you physically write down the passwords that you're using and have a different password for everything that way, if someone does work out or figures out a password for one thing, it's not the same for 30 other accounts that you have. But yeah, um, yeah whatever you do, do not throw that piece of paper out. Or if you do, make sure that you <laughs> change everything on it. But um, yeah. Or the idea that there there genuinely was. I mean, the, the plague, Eugene, he is the security advisor for the fictional company. Mm-hmm that's in the film he's in charge of the database and and he says he actually has a meeting and he says what did i tell you you people because he's obviously trying to protect them yeah and he says these are the four most common passwords that is all true that people genuinely were using those were the most common passwords they weren't making that kind of stuff up this this was coming straight out of what was going on in real life what was you know the what they were learning from the time and my question that i kind of have is that it's reflecting youth culture the people behind this you know united artists mgm they were kind of they're kind of looking at this movie and they're finding it hard to market they're they're asking themselves who's this speaking to yeah. Because they look at they look at Matthew Lillard's character and they're like, why has he got pigtails? Why is why is in one scene it looks like he's wearing a dress, and <laughs> someone else someone else is wearing a dress. Why are those two hackers that have the TV show Razor and Burn? Why are they wearing makeup? Yeah. So the the, produ- the producers are having all these kind of statements, and Ian Softly is trying to say to them, "This is tomorrow. It's not." today you've got this whole range of like cultures i mean this is quite a multicultural film Mm -hmm. yeah but you've got these producers in 95 saying stuff like we know well why are guys wearing makeup why are guys dressed like this yeah yeah it's it's almost like they're they're trying to find i don't know problems or the or they've got issues 
with with the way that kind of youth was changing. Well, yeah, you're probably right because I can't speak for all film producers, I myself not being a film producer, but I would imagine that their, their main concern for not knowing themselves who the target audience was, was because, you know, if there wasn't a target audience, they were going to lose money, which they ultimately did. But they were probably pointing these things out because it might have still made them feel a bit uncomfortable. And I don't want to stereotype, ironically talking about stereotypes, but the film producers for this particular film were probably middle-aged to older white men from they were yeah. they were oh well, well there you go i hit the nail on the bloody head didn't i so obviously things like like male characters wearing makeup or um dresses or dressing in a certain way and stuff like that probably did make them feel a bit uncomfortable because either they didn't see it as a joke or it just made them feel straight up uncomfortable but i guess that's a sort of sign of the time because you know i guess in the sort of mid 90s things were starting to get a little bit more progressive i guess we're always kind of chipping away at that i remember buying an album which was by the the band suede and suede had released a single called animal nitrate which i just absolutely loved at the at the time nobody remembers how good the album was because people just remember the fact that the album cover was two guys kissing Oh, right. Oh, okay. But that was the most controversial thing at the time. It just seems to be that if you are trying to tap into... This is what, you know, we've, we've been to the clubs and we've actually seen this. Yeah. This is, you know, you know Ian Softley, he, he, he visited in London Save the Robots, which was an underground club. To kind of take this story full circle almost, like... He's hearing Massive Attack. He's hearing Underworld. He's hearing The Prodigy. All the music that's in his film, he's hearing it. He's hearing it in London clubs and New York clubs. And he's seeing the youth and he's seeing how they react and how they look and how they dress and how they are with each other. And he puts that in his film. Mm-hmm. It's It seems to be the people that have the most, biggest problem with it are the ones that are grounded in... Too grounded in their own reality. Yeah. Okay. That's that's too set. Too set in their ways. Too set in their ways. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I I think that's probably fairly accurate. But one thing I was going to point out, which I find both well, kind of funny and ironic, is that these film producers they've probably spent a little bit time have been around actors and maybe have gone to the theater once or twice. Back in the day, it was uh, uncouth. Or it was it was frowned upon for women to perform in plays, so men yeah. played female characters. So they got properly dressed up in dresses that lady people wore, and put makeup makeup on which lady people wore. And yeah, everyone was absolutely on board and fine with it until uh, women were allowed to act. Yeah, it's it, I just find it kind of funny that it's uh it's an old traditional thing that men would wear dresses and makeup and yet it was deemed in a potentially more progressive time from back then to be quite a weird thing that wh- why why is he wearing makeup why, why is he wearing a dress why are they dressing like that why do they yeah. look so weird it's like it's not that weird just stop and think about it it's almost like sometimes they're afraid of you know, are we going to be influencing things when it mm-hmm. when it's the opposite? It's it's not about influencing. No. it's actually about recognizing yep. what is going on. Mm-hmm. So you're you're you are just visually sharing what is already 
out there. I think that that's why some critics really liked it. Older critics, not necessarily. Funny that. <laughs> but certainly the 15 to maybe 20, 20 year olds that this is tapping into really did like it. Because mm-hmm. if you speak to people that are in that kind of industry or perhaps work now for computer companies, I guarantee you'll find that there's a lot of people that have very fond memories and maybe even do what they do because of being spurned on by what they're seeing in hackers. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's probably very true, actually, yeah. To me, that's the more kind of positive influence rather than, oh, we can't have a man wear makeup. Uh, <laughs> heaven forbid. Yeah, dearie me. <laughs> is, there not, is there not a specific day or a time of the year where everyone puts on makeup and funny costumes and guess what? Men put on makeup and funny costumes as well. <laughs> it's coming up, actually, that particular day, isn't it? <laughs> this this kind of culture, it, you can look at it and you can say, oh, it's a bit dated, it's a bit cheesy and things like that. But I, I really do think it was it's a really nice reflection at the time. I mean, if you look at even the clothes that some of them are wearing, I mean, Angelina Jolie walks out at one point and in order to kind of really get that kind of uh, cyberpunk look or we're going to just merge and mesh things together, the, the costume designer took a fencing jacket and just cut off the arms. Oh, right. Okay. And that's, you know, so she actually walks out in this sleeveless white jacket and it looks pretty cool. It's a, It used to be a fencing jacket. And that's all it was, yeah. I'm going to ask your opinion of the, the kind of colour schemes because Ian softly said that for the movie he created what he called a, a cyber palette. Okay. Which was lots of intense colours. I mean, did you did you notice when you were watching this perhaps how like bright and vivid everything was as opposed to other films? Yeah, I can see where I can see where the the sort of cyber palette comes into it. I think it's probably more prevalent um, during the. Uh, the scenes where um, Plague is trying to like, you know, defend the company from um, hacking attacks, and they're in that kind of control room. Who, just out of curiosity, see the other guy in that control room. He's a he's like a magician, isn't he? He's like an American magician. Yeah, um, yeah. Is it? Uh, oh God. Pe- it's a, it's a pendulette. Aye, that's it. From Pen Pen and Teller. From Pen and Teller, yeah. <laughs> what a weird cameo, but all right. Well, actually, it, it's it's not pendulette. Is a he's fascinated by computers he he's actually a hacker himself ah right well that makes a hell of a lot more sense then he was part of that kind of community and he he wasn't necessarily a consultant but he was brought on board because he had a lot of knowledge i've already mentioned the character that joey is based on mm-hmm. nicholas jarecki pen gillette was friends with nicholas gillette oh, because right. nicholas Nick, Nicholas Duretti hacked his system. <laughs> oh man, that's that's quite a that's quite a funny way that things have kind of come about. Wow. Okay. Well, it was it, it was a challenge. Right. Penn and Teller set up a system, and they basically said that anybody that hacks it, the reward would be that they would get to come and meet them. So once once you were in, you then got details of where to meet Pendulette, what time. And it it sounds a little bit dodgy. It does a wee bit. Like, but Pendulette was not meeting for any other reason than to basically say, 
well done. I admire what you do. Keep doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I'm a big fan. And the people that were hacking him, they were fans of him. They, you know, uh... Nicholas Jarecki, the reason that he stumbled across it was was because he was a fan of, of him as both as a magician and as a hacker. The film's got like loads of little nods. I mean, so again, I know I keep repeating this, but this idea that of tying into youth culture, the film has got shot references to Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets. It's got shot references to Taxi Driver. Yeah. And both of these both of these films are about about that youth culture as well. But beyond that, it's got little nods to kind of groundbreaking stuff. Cause, so Penn Jillette's character is called Hal. Mm-hmm. And Hal, Hal 9000, <laughs> is, the, is, is the computer yep. from 2001 Space Odyssey. Hello, Dave. You know, yes. <laughs> My mind is going, Dave. <laughs> Dave, Dave, <laughs> that's that's for that's for a little tidbit there for just those in the know. I just really like how this is this is kind of tapping in, but you, you've picked out a really good scene there in terms of color wise. Yeah, because it's always red in that particular room. It, it, it's it's red and green. Yeah, um, which I think is probably the best example of it. It makes that makes a lot of sense. But yeah, there was a lot of sort of intense lights, any kind of party or club scene, and a lot of the film I think sort of takes part at night or in you know you know in the evening kind of thing you know there's, yeah. there's bits and pieces that take part during the day but most of the stuff is at party or at night or do, at parties or at night or you know doing other things like that so it just means no, you're 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 totally yeah, right and the lights are just like um yeah really quite intense and in your face so yeah um i, I definitely picked up on it but probably more probably in certain scenes more than others even the the stuff in grand central grand central station mm-hmm. because they got to film in two locations in grand central because you 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 can only shoot in grand central station on a sunday in the very early hours in the morning ah. but yet they're make they may actually make it look like it's during the day the other bit that they use for grand central which i'll, I'll talk about later that's actually filmed at Pinewood in London. They film most of the on-location stuff in New York. A lot of the interior stuff is sets that they built at, pardon me, at Pinewood. For this kind of like cyber palette, Ian softly employed Andre Secular, Mm -hmm. who is the cinematographer for Pulp Fiction. Andre Secular chose to shoot the film using what's called 50 ASA. ASA stands for the American Standards Association and it's a scale for rating your film speed. It's to do with the grain as well. It's to do with the, the speed of exposure because that then depends on how much light will be exposed to the film. So if you're using a slow film stock, you're actually going to end up with a really, really vibrant shot. The stock that he was using, when you see it, on screen you get you get those colors but in order to light that you have to Mm -hmm. light everything and i'm talking like everything has to be brightly lit to the point that even though Uh, most stuff takes place at night the film crew are walking around and they're wearing sunglasses because because it's so everything's so brightly lit just so you can get you can you can (laughs) see that that amazing uh color palette yeah, and that kind of like intensity. I just think that that must have been yeah. like an amazing thing to see. Like, if you imagine, you know those like um, 
those bits in the in the Simpsons or Family Guy, and it'll be like a UFO arrives in the backyard, and a big beam of light comes out. Yeah, and it's like so intense, and it takes up every. It, oh yeah, it just reminded yeah. me. It must have been like that yeah. walking around, and it just light everywhere probably and there was probably disclaimers handed out to all the production crew like if you have photosensitive epilepsy this is not going to be the production for you sort of thing, so <laughs> were you a, a rollerblader no i was a bit more of a skater and not an uh not a, a very good one and then a, a bit of snowboarding which i still do when the season and time allows it but uh yeah skating but that that was going to be one of the things that i picked up in my um likes and dislikes was <laughs> was the amount of uh was the amount of rollerblading in it i think in the 90s people were going about i think like it, when ian softly was because they were, they were filming at night time mm-hmm. and he's he's seeing these people in the background you know they're not they're nothing to do with the film yeah but they're going about on rollerblades and I, I, I was never into like skating or, or rollerblading or anything. My, my brothers were BMXers. Oh, okay. But I never, I could never have, I just didn't have the balance. But yeah, they, they, they made the, the cast learn, the cast learned to rollerblade. Mm-hmm. And even Fisher, Fisher Stevens being the older, you know, and being the villain, they gave him, he, he goes about on a skateboard, which I, I, I actually quite like. Because it shows that he's this kind of like menacing guy, but because he because he he does the in one scene, he does the Brian De Palma moment in Untouchables, and he takes the baseball bat. Oh yeah. To the uh, to Dade's hi-fi system and yep. smashes it to bits. You know, in, in Untouchables, Robert De Niro takes the baseball bat to the the back of the guy's head. Yeah, it's it's like as the plague. Fisher Stevens, he can be really quite over the top, and mm-hmm. he, he is this kind of like chewing the scenery, which I I personally I really love. Yeah, and then he pops up on a skateboard. <laughs> yeah, which I found quite I found quite funny because it was the sort of early early noughties that I started like kind of like I got started getting skateboards and um skating and doing bits and pieces like that but obviously things would have been different in the in the states and earlier on but definitely here in sunny scotland i think the skating scene maybe took a little bit longer to make its way up even from london up to here i just find it funny how like all the hackers were on rollerblades and yet he was on a skateboard and it was i I don't know just for me it was just kind of comical it probably wasn't meant to be it was again more of a sort of sign of the times but oh was it right okay then it was absolutely hilarious (laughs) there is comedy in this film yeah softly puts lots of cotton and there's some very very funny moments in this film mm-hmm. and i love the plague's entrance where he comes in it's a close-up on his face and it's menacing yeah and then it cuts to a long shot and he's on a, he's on a skateboard <laughs> yeah. and, and i just i laugh at that i think i think it's great and obviously skateboarding was big in the 80s yeah and obviously people still do it you know and People were probably tapping into to like Tony Hawk and things like Aye, that, but yeah. it's it's like right, we're gonna give we're gonna put him on a skateboard because he's that he's the older hacker, he's the <laughs> older past generation, yeah. and then these guys are gonna go on the rollerblades. Apparently, when Fisher Fisher Stevens loved learning to skateboard, oh cool, uh, but he ended he ended up in hospital because he landed on his head. Oh jeez, oh man, that that's yeah. 
Well, I suppose that's why you wear a helmet, kids. Yes, it is. When, when we see Joey hacking the company and we we go inside the database. Yeah. So you know how we, we talked earlier about that kind of transition and the miniatures and stuff like that, okay? Now, I know that you have seen and are a fan for all the wrong reasons <laughs> of the Lawnmower Man. <laughs> yes. What a film. For people who don't know, just give us a kind of description of like the <laughs> the digital look, the graphics in that film. Uh, in Lawnmower Man. Yeah. Yeah. Shoddy as hell. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. That, that's probably going to be one of the recommendations that I give, so I'm going to just give it now. Like, <laughs> if, if, you're, if you enjoyed this film or you're interested to see this film, watch Lawnmower Man. Get a bunch of friends round. Just get one more man watch because it's got um, it's got Pierce Brosnan in as like one of his. It does. But it it wasn't even like a super early role. It was like one of the last roles he had before his first Bond film was in that. Am I right in saying that? Lauren Moorman must have been maybe 91, 92. Jesus. I think. Right. Anyway, the the story alone is laughable, but it's just the super ropey graphics, and I mean. The film kind of has excuses, but I mean, the special special effects and graphics and films like hell, even Star Wars and stuff like th- like older films had far better CGI. And I don't know, maybe maybe it's the context that's different, but like CGI in films like Jurassic Park holds up by today's standards, and yet these films came out a couple years after, and clearly the budget was a, a big deciding factor, but. The CGI in some of these films is just so, so bad, but it's potentially the context that is getting used. So I guess in Lawnmower Man, it's like, oh, we're going to take you into the digital mainframe scape using this VR headset and a bloody gyroscope thing that you get strapped into for some bloody reason. And they, they don't know, oh, what would it be like to be inside a computer? So, like, black background with green gridding and stuff like that. And it's yeah. like, yeah, this is what a computer looks like inside. Yeah, so there's a little bit of that in Hackers, but it's, I don't know, it's, um, I guess it's a, in Hackers, it's a bit more of a visual representation of, right, they're going into this is what a database looks like and now they're looking for particular files and this is what happens. You know, so it's not a total, it's not a complete far cry from what's actually going on. So when when you see like the database system, like the big company system, yeah. or when you go, in, do you think that that these kind of things look look cheap compared to things like Lawnmower Man? It's elaborate, but it looks like it's maybe got an extra tenor in the budget for hackers <laughs> than it does for Lawnmower Man. A tenor for anyone listening in the states is probably about twenty bucks, or it was before our economy <laughs> crashed. Yeah, so it's. It's it's a little bit. It looks a little bit better, but I, th- I think it maybe I think it maybe looks better because there's a purpose to it. Because with one more man, it was just weird, just so so weird. So I'm gonna blow your world just now. Same guy, wasn't it? No, 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 no. Obviously, the lawnmower man stuff. Oh, jeez. I mean, there was <laughs> there was computer games that looked better than that. <laughs> there actually was. Yeah. Right. <laughs> In terms of, like, especially, like, the, the database itself. Mm-hmm. Now, you and I have talked about, in previous podcasts, about our kind of love of practical effects. Yes. As opposed to visual effects. Yep. That database of the, the camera sweeping in and you see in these big columns, they were they were glass prospects columns built in a set. Ah, 
that's very cool. It was a 50 foot square set and they had green under lighting. Yeah. And the camera's on an arm and it sweeps down and it moves in between them. And what you have, the only thing that's digital is actually nothing. There's nothing digital because they used animation to put the text on. Oh, right, yeah. In those scenes when you're seeing the inside of the, the big database or you're seeing like the the guts that are inside the computer yeah. the computers and things like that, it's a practical effect. It's, it's like a miniature. It's ah. been lit a certain way and then they animate. And not only was that cheaper than using CGI, but it means that I think you could control it because... See those glass perspex pillars that were the database. Mm -hmm. If you actually looked closely, that computer room that you mentioned earlier weren't on, which was reds and greens. Yeah. That's what the plague what comes past. So behind him are those green perspex pillars. Ah, okay. And they've all got like different text on them and stuff like that. And uh -huh. that's one of the hardest shots in the whole movie to shoot. Right, okay. Because they needed different animation on every single pillar. Jeez, oh. Even though you're not looking at it. Oh god, that that that's got to be a uh, that's got to be pretty frustrating for the animators. <laughs> you know, you're you're just doing literally just the background stuff, but it's the 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 more difficult time consuming side of it. Well, that's that's the thing. I mean, the, I think I timed it. The shot of coming down seeing the, seeing the plague on the skateboard coming down the pillars mm -hmm. with oh, just some text scrolling across them to make it look like the database is actually alive. Like so, so when we've seen inside the computer with Joey, mm -hmm. and it's almost like right, what what he's seeing when he's finding the garbage file and he's hacking and he stumbles across the virus, what he's seeing on his screen is almost then replicated in the kind of real world. Yep. In that room, but it's four or five seconds coming down now they're always they're always there when we see them behind them yeah but for that shot that's that's that was 12 hours worth of work jeez oh just to get that kind of animated yeah i want to talk about our villain uh-huh fisher stevens eugene <laughs> he's an actor who's been around for a long time but he's he's probably more now, uh, today, he's more recognised as being a kind of producer and director. Mm -hmm. And did you eventually get round to watching Tiger King on Netflix? Yeah, I watched Tiger King and I, I, I don't care what people said. I would happily never watch that thing again. Like, I, I just, it, I, I didn't enjoy anyone. There was no good people in that documentary. No. I, I, I wasn't, yeah. I was didn't feel bad for anyone in it. Like, it's just, it was just the Netflix um, pick of the month and it was right smack bang at the start of lot lockdown and stuff so it was the the thing to watch and yeah the, lots of drama and stuff but yeah not for me i remember because we had like a, a group chat and people were obviously messaging back and forth saying yeah. have you seen this this is amazing and i kind of got on the the back foot of that because i it really angered me when i, I really irritated and annoyed me. oh yeah uh -huh. and people were watching it and they were obviously seeing the the buffoon it was Joe Exotic and stuff Aye. like that. And, and they were finding lots of stuff hysterical and there was lots of kind of like chat based around that. And, yeah. But as a show and for what it did and what, what was happening to the animals and stuff like that, 
it I I mean I really really disliked it. Yeah. Because it just because it, it just made me feel so angry. Yeah, and I mean there must be an element of detachment if you're watching these things and it, you do kind of just watch it for entertainment value. I don't know what it is. I mean I'm I'm a bit of a an animal lover. I think animals are pretty awesome. I used to go to the zoo all the time as a kid, and you know I, I have a great interest, but. You know, have, going to the zoo that many times as a kid, like I'm well aware that some animals are not happy in cages, but some animals are rescued from worse places and yeah. they can't be reintroduced into the environment they're from because they'll die in minutes. So it's uh, yeah. it's a bit of a difficult thing. But watching these animals in these cages and stuff, and I won't go on about it too much longer, but for maybe the first couple of episodes, it was kind of about the animals. And then after that, it was just about their own rednecky drama bullshit after that and it just like i got through it i just finished it just for the sake of being able to talk to other people about it but i had nothing positive to say about it and to be honest i didn't really find any of it funny either like i I wasn't entertained i was kind of like you dave i was just really really annoyed and really upset the entire time it was an unpleasant experience Mm. yeah so well fisher stevens he was one of the producers yeah yeah and he he's also responsible for Mission Blue and uh, The Cove, which uh, The Cove is a very, very difficult watch. Yeah. It's about the, cu- the culling of dolphins. Yep. He kind of tiptoes the wire between two different types of documentary. He does environmental uh-huh. and then he does real it is real life. And actually his real life stuff is is much better. He made one called Bright Lights in 2016 that he co-directed. Mm-hmm. And it is based on um, kind of like the final months with uh, Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds. Ah. And it explores their relationship. And it's it's a really, really good film. It shows the strength in the relationship between mother and daughter. Uh-huh. But also, when it, especially Debbie Reynolds, because she was very old at the time, when you see her on camera and like the few times that she... she she tries to talk directly to the camera as opposed to when the camera's just following her. Uh-huh. There's some really difficult shots because she's completely dolled up. She's got her wig on. She's got her makeup on. Mm-hmm. Okay, and she spent most of the morning doing this and she maybe only gets through about 90 seconds of the interview before she has to stop. There's a shot of her and she's smiling, but her eyes are just so sad and Jeez. so tired. Wow, and it's just because it's like what's what's going on the inside doesn't match what's on the outside, mm-hmm. and and how you look and the documentary shows you how kind of hard they were all working, yeah, and what they were kind of doing because the they they died very close together. Yeah, I might give that a watch actually. I'm just kind of looking it up as we're chatting and. Uh... Yeah, it looks it looks pretty interesting, but um, it's it's really yeah. good. It is really good, but Fisher Stevens has got has kind of forged this quite successful career, and he still acts. He still uh-huh. regularly appears in TV shows. I I quite like uh, the Blacklist with James Spader, and mm-hmm. he appears in that. But most people remember Fisher Stevens for one of two roles. This is one of them. Mm-hmm. The pantomime-chewing villain that is the plague. What did you feel about or 
think of Fisher Stevens as the villain. I found it quite appropriate that he was kind of head of basically like, I don't know, cyber security for this company because it makes sense that if you really knew what you were doing and you were happy enough to fight for the winning team, you know, you would try and defend a big corporation and get like a pretty pretty decent salary out of it. He was quite threatening. He obviously knew what he was talking about and he had this grand plan he he wasn't like a when you mentioned pantomime he was a little bit a little bit cartoony at certain points but he wasn't like oh those hackers have foiled me yet again kind of thing um it, it always seemed like he had another backup plan or he was quite cool and collected in order to try and get to the end game as it were and yeah i thought he wasn't too i thought i thought he played a good i thought he played a good role i thought he was a good villain um and he played it in a particular way he wasn't too cartoony and over the top all the time but he wasn't very sort of corporate and quiet and reserved either do you think he looked like he was having fun with it now that you mention it i I don't i wouldn't say so no sometimes it's can be more fun to play a villain than it is like a hero true i think when you play a villain it does lend itself to you could go too far yes with it and like you're kind of saying like not not overly cartoonish Mm -hmm. you know we're not we're not talking wily coyote who keeps on getting a 200 ton (laughs) weight dropped on his head yeah yeah you you can you could go too far with it mm-hmm. you could you could be like Nicolas Cage and go full cage <laughs> and you could have fun being a villain yeah or you could rein it all in and be totally deadly serious and try and be really really sinister yeah and from what you were saying it's almost like it's almost like middle ground uh-huh. he's he's not he's not too serious which I think is re- is, is is crucial because mm. For a film like this, if the plague was Robert De Niro, you'd have a completely different film. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think you needed somebody that was perhaps going to borderline between the two of, I can be menacing and threatening, but I don't mind laughing at the screen and saying lines like, you're going to come at me, come at me. Yeah, yeah. Like when he's counter hacking, it's like he's doing little a little commentary to himself yeah. as well. So that's what I, I kind of mean by like, having fun with it right yeah. okay does, does that make a bit more sense yeah yeah and I, I get what you mean um i don't know maybe maybe it just seemed like he potentially wasn't actually having all that much fun doing it because he was you know he was the villain he had to keep a sort of low brow he had to you know he had a plan that he had to try and execute and these guys were foiling said plan so yeah he didn't mix or socialize with any of the younger guys oh, okay. he kept a distance right i think sometimes as well it's because it's us versus them. Yeah. And that can hit. Bill Skarsgård did that for it. Oh, uh, okay. He kept himself completely separate. They didn't actually allow the children for it chapter one to see Pennywise until the very last moments before a scene was about to begin. Ah, uh, right. Because they, they wanted the genuine shock effect. Yeah, yeah. They wanted them to be terrified of him. Makes sense. Good morning, gentlemen. Please be seated. I see we're still dressing in the dark, Eugene. Once again, don't call me Eugene. A recent unknown intruder penetrated using a super user account, giving him access to our whole system. Precisely what you're paid to prevent. 
Someone didn't bother reading my carefully prepared memo on commonly used passwords. Now then, as I so meticulously pointed out, the four most used passwords are love, sex, secret, and God. So would your holiness care to change her password? A hacker planted the virus. Virus? Yesterday, the ballast program for a super tanker training model mistakenly thought the vessel was empty and flooded its tanks. Excuse me. The little boat flipped over. A virus planted within the Gibson computer system claimed responsibility. What, it left a note? Unless five million dollars are transferred to the following numbered account in seven days, I would capsize five tankers in the annex of fleet. Is that? That is the virus. Leonardo da Vinci. The problem is we have 26 ships at sea and we don't know which ones are infected. Well then, put the ship's ballast under manual control. There's no such thing anymore, Duke. These ships are totally computerized. They rely on satellite navigation which links them to our network and the virus, wherever they are in the world. So what are we supposed to do? Well, luckily, you have a gifted and talented security officer. I traced the hacker's call. The Secret Service picked him up this morning. I'll just search his files for the original virus code, and then I can eliminate it. I said he's he's recognizable for one of two roles. Now, I, you and I, I, I talked to you briefly about this. Not in the, the, the pre-show chat, but this was, I think, a couple of weeks ago. Fisher Stevens is a white Caucasian American. Mm -hmm. Kind of uh, big nose, glasses, looks like a bit of a stereotypical kind of nerdy computer guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he's cast in the movie Short Circuit, okay? Mm -hmm. People will probably fondly remember the film Short Circuit from the 1980s. Johnny Five is alive. He's the robot that gets hit by a, a bolt of lightning and suddenly he's alive. Mm. But F Fisher Stevens is cast uh, in the kind of supporting role in that film. He's not the inventor of Johnny Five, but he's like the technician almost. And his name is Ben and he's got the part and... It's maybe his second or third movie. He's getting quite a decent wage. And the producers turn around and say, can you play him Indian? Yeah. Yep. And he's like, what, what, what do you mean? We want you to, to play him as an, as, as an Indian. As a, we want you to be, a, to be a man from Pakistan. Yeah. And Fisher Stevens like, why? Because the script doesn't say that. No, yeah, it's, it's such a, it's such a weird thing to just suddenly have an idea and introduce. The producer's reaction was very simple. He said, "Because Indian's funny." Yeah. You've got this this actor who's grateful for the work, and he's being told, "Put on brown face, dye your hair black, put on an Indian accent, because it's funny." 
That, that's such a poor reason to switch a character's ethnicity in a film. And not only that, but to actually get a Caucasian actor to play someone that's supposed to be from like India or the Middle East or something like that. It's just such a... It, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a very weird move and it seems completely unnecessary. And the reason for it is, mm. oh, you, you know, it, it's, it's funny. I don't think that works, but it's a bit of a divisive thing because... For years and years, Hank Azaria had done the voice for Apu Nahasapima Petalon in The Simpsons, who is yeah. in Hank Azaria as a Caucasian actor. It's a bit of a weird one because The Simpsons obviously started in '89 on the Tracy Allman show, and I think I think Apu's character he's right there from the start basically as well so he is, he is. Um, but i think it's yeah you you would really need to you would almost need to take a, a vote or a poll and just go around as many people that have that kind of back that ethic ethnic background or speak to people and it's like Dude, does this offend you you know i think fisher stevens was kind of calling the producers out like why are you making this change now like like what benefit is there going to be to this and obviously the 80s just about anything went in the 80s especially when it came to films so um yeah i I, I don't agree with it it's alarming to think that that's that's these kind of snap decisions Mm -hmm. went went by and even even though they were challenged yeah it's like you're making my movie uh-huh. So if you want to be in it, to his credit, Fisher Stevens did actually return to the role for the sequel. He's in, he, he and he's the main part in Short Circuit Two. Uh-huh. And Fisher Stevens actually went and did six months research, and he lived with a family in India. All right, okay. And he did not want to simply be a, a stereotype. No, he's starring in a comedy film, and this idea that well, the accent's funny. That is so horribly racist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I at least can can feel for how difficult it must have been for Fisher Stevens to don the makeup, do the accent, mm. take the paycheck, and there's all this stuff out there that you could you you know you could argue against. And you introduced me to Parks and Recreation. Yeah, and Parks and Recreation has actually probably one of the most high-profile American Indian actors, Aziz Ansari, yeah. who is phenomenal in that show. So funny. And and Aziz, he created Master of None, and there's actually an episode of Master of None called Indians on TV. All right. And he talks about who were his positive role models growing up. Mm-hmm. For years... He had absolutely no idea that um, the character Ben uh, Javiri mm-hmm. from Short Circuit. He had no idea that he was white. Fisher Stevens, yeah. And and he his his family his his dad used to say that's a positive Indian role model. Jeez, oh. It goes back as well to your very good argument regarding Hank Azari. Again, it's like you know. Well, there's a very positive role model, and it's like no, these these are harmful stereotypes that they're being used for for cheap comedy, and it's only recently, am I right in saying that Hank Azari has he actually has said no, 
I'm not. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not totally coiled up in the whole situation with uh, the character of Apu, um, but I know that there was. I think there was a documentary that came out called "The Problem with Apu," the character, and yeah, I think uh, I think that documentary just kind of highlighted a lot of things, and I think it forced. Uh, I think it forced Fox, or at least the the more direct producers of The Simpsons, to kind of get rid of the character. And there are stereotypical things that are introduced with Apu's character but it just seemed that again definitely at the t- at the time of the early 90s like right at the start of the 90s um Apu's character wasn't brought in to just play all the stereotypes I mean again I'm not from the states but I-, I guess the stereotype was that most sort of smaller retail stores were potentially owned by people from the Middle East or India or you know th- that sort of area yeah. so th- they I think they kind of introduced that maybe it might have been a diversity thing because obviously if you're working for the Simpsons you're going to be pretty left wing um, I don't think it was Fox's decision to have a poo in I guess it was just deemed maybe a little bit it, it was deemed more funny and maybe not nearly as inappropriate as it is now for someone to do an accent but it's it's a very it's a very tricky thing and it's a very thin line to tread because again you would need to you know white people cannot be offended on the behalf of who the joke is being made about so you would really need to speak to you know someone that had you know like i said earlier that has that ethnic background and just ask like look do you find this funny or does this actually just un- straight up annoy you um or you know does it offend you kind of thing so yeah i, I definitely am a, i'm a firm believer in not um singling out a certain ethnicity but i'm also all about not being offended on behalf of others because if it has nothing to do with you then you can why are you being offended but i love the simpsons i love the character apu but i can totally understand that if people were being quite vocal um how it upset them how it um affected their culture or maybe their kids or whatever and they thought nah this isn't on then yeah, I can I can I can sort of see where they're coming from. It's a diff- if it's a difficult one, and there is there is no there's no necessarily correct answer. I think that you've answered that very well as well because if you look at you've got Disney Plus, haven't you? I do, yeah. Right. So if you look at Disney Plus, you'll now find that for a lot of their older films, which uses cultural stereotypes. They now come with uh, either a warning um, in the little synopsis box or at the the start. So Mm -hmm. Lady in the Tramp, you've got the Siamese cats, but you've also you've also got got Jock the Dog and you've got our a, a bulldog, not a, not a bulldog. You've got a, another dog that talks with a Russian accent. Mm-hmm. You've got a Chihuahua that talks with a Mexican accent. Yeah, these things, while they are a product of their time, it does show you now that there is some acknowledgement that actually these cultural stereotypes were are inappropriate today, and we're acknowledging that they are inappropriate. Yeah. You're still getting to watch them. You're still yeah. getting to see those those classics because you can't you're not you can't remove those things. To see the the work that Fisher Stevens did to try and do the role justice and amend what should never have been, I think you've got to give give credit for him because those are the the two things that I will always remember Fisher Stevens for. Ahead mm-hmm. of his amazing documentary work, and I know this has went on for quite a bit now, but it is actually going to be for 
for his charmingly delightful cackling villain as the plague but also for for his his actions yeah. try you know rather than the role itself but his actions trying to to do the role justice joey I need you to drop your virus go after the worm you're the closest it's root slash period workspace slash period garbage period ask you in our podcast Doug uh, mm-hmm. to guess what you think was the most difficult scene to shoot and it's not the 12 hour scene that I have already mentioned because that would be giving things away too easily what do you think for the movie was the most difficult scene to shoot in terms of most difficult I'm just going to go out and guess and I'm going to say was it the scene where Fisher Stevens is skating along and grabs the floppy disk out of Dade's uh, Johnny Wee Miller's hand was was that the difficult scene no no it was not it's a good guess Uh, the most difficult scene was the when they're rollerblading to Grand Central Station (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because they had to shut down Third Avenue in Manhattan. And Jeez. in order to do that, because they're rollerblading and they're rollerblading on the road, they needed yep. stunt they needed stunt drivers and also the ground that they were covering, Third Avenue's really quite long. Oh right. Yeah. So that was the that was the most difficult shot to uh oh, right. to scene. Uh, shot to scene. <laughs> scene to shoot <laughs> scene to shoot I can't speak anymore just before we we go on to maybe some maybe our ratings and then some mm-hmm. reviews Duke okay the tagline for the movie mm-hmm. is and we hear it in the film actually it's the name of the TV show that Razor and Blade have is, is Hack the Planet oh yeah hackers penetrate and ravage delicate private and publicly owned computer systems 
infecting them with viruses and stealing materials for their own ends. These people, they're Agent Richard Gill, your hacker enemy number one, man. Thank you, Mr. You're a Gil. boner. Yo, showtime, showtime. Yeah. <coughs> What's going on? Four, three, three two, two, one. Welcome to our show. Hack the planet. Hack the planet. And for those late night hacks. Don't cola. The soft drink of the elite hacker. Who are these guys? It's Razor and Blade. Find a payphone in a remote loop. Razor and Blade. That's right. This is a payphone. Don't ask. As you can see, this is just a simple micro cassette recorder. Hook it up to the phone and drop in five bucks and quarters. Record the tones that the coins make, and hang up and get your money back. And never again pay for a service that would be dirt cheap. If it weren't run by a bunch of profiteering gluttons. Remember, hacking is more than just a crime. It's a survival trait. I thought I remembered the name of that techniques when you dial into a company to get their oh, yeah. information. So it's called social engineering. You know the the, the computer company, um, they've got... Uh, it's, they call it the Gibson computer. I, I don't know yes. why. I found it interesting. I put this in the Easter eggs and the and the film trivia bit that you see the plague come fighting against a a cookie monster icon that's yeah. going across the screen. Mm -hmm. That was that apparently that was a real virus. Oh, was it? All right. Yeah, and the only way you could you could stop it was you had to type the word cookie, All which, which right. is which is what he tells Hal to do. He, say, uh -huh. he says, he says, type, type cookie, you idiot. But apparently if you type the word Oreo, then it permanently removes it. All right. Oh, okay. I just looked at that and thought that, you know, that, that it was just maybe a, a, I don't know, some sort of reference to Sesame Street. But apparently <laughs> no, 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 that, was, that, that was a real thing that people used to, used to put into people's machines and stuff. So. Oh, wow. In terms of... My rating system, I always use chainsaws because we know that I'm obsessed with horror. And I have to say that Hackers is a movie that I think of very fondly. I re-watch it at, at least once a year, at least. Mm -hmm. I saw it when I was 15. I was delighted by it when I was 15. I'm still delighted by it. <laughs> it's on my guilty pleasure shelf. And... Every home who has a collection of movies, or whether you you keep it on your streaming devices, or whatever, but everybody needs to have a guilty pleasure section. And for me, Hackers sits proudly between my copy of The Phantom and The Shadow. <laughs> People are probably going to be like, yeah, but you, how can you give this this when you gave Night Out? Knives out three out of five chainsaws. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I have very poor standards. And <laughs> I am going to have to give five chainsaws out of five for hackers. I'm I'm sorry, you're not people aren't gonna agree with me. <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes certainly doesn't with thirty-three percent. I just really like this movie and i'm giving it five out of five well we talked about this earlier you it sounded like you were the right age when you went to go see this film initially and to make a film to that will keep you feeling sentimental 25 years on 
kind of thing. Like, there's got to be something in that. Like, to make a film that will produce a sort of sentimental reaction, there's th- that in itself has got to have some kind of. Uh, th- that's a that's probably an art form in itself. Yes, it's an incredibly '90s film, but like you said, when you went to see it, you you know you were probably smack bang in the right demographic. Mm-hmm. the the film was made for so five out of five that is incredibly high but obviously you watch this film on a you know an annual basis at least as well so it makes perfect sense you know that's it's, that's that's a good sign if there's a film that you want to re-watch that's definitely a good sign the thing is that obviously the the point of this i mean people come on the, the title of the show is dugan picks bad yet surprisingly good <laughs> film and tv podcast I think we have firmly established that we are not looking at cinematic masterpieces like The Godfather. The point is, you know, that like I've been surrounded by film my whole life and I'm fully aware that there are all these film polls out there and, you know, Empire Strikes Back tops polls. Mm hmm. Memento comes in there, Usual Suspects, and you know I, I I love and adore all these movies. But this podcast looks at the the weird and wonderful, and sometimes the stuff that goes under the radar. And we have viewed some awful films, and we've viewed some <laughs> some brilliant films, and we've also disagreed. And yeah. Doug, you're right. This this movie just speaks to me as a as my. As the fifteen-year-old in me, I mean, I, I won't rate it as highly for me. Now, I use um, the Infinity Stones being a comic book reader and enjoying the Marvel film franchise, so I use Infinity Stones as my rating. So I'm out of six. So I'm gonna give. I'll, I'll actually give Hackers four out of six Infinity Stones. Now, I, it was it is a super nineties film, and obviously, I'm not of the generation because I, I I don't I think I was. Mm, I don't know, maybe starting to put a bit more distance learning to walk. I think my vocabulary was just coming about when this film came out. You weren't coding um, at that age? No, not, not yet. I'm not coding at this age. I don't do code. I'm a technician. I'm not a coder. But um, I'll, I'll, I'll give it four out of six because it was actually still quite good fun. Uh-huh. Um, clearly, research was put into it. Um, they've obviously spoken to actual hackers rather than just decided, oh, we're going to make a film about hackers and this is what we think it is, and then make a film they actually consulted with actual hackers at the time. It was, yeah, it, I would, to be honest, I was entertained. I was actually quite entertained. And, you know, 90s films isn't usually my go to unless it is the classics like Indiana Jones. Well, that's not 90s, is it? Uh, Jurassic Park, which are maybe a bit more timeless because there's less references yes it's kind of sci-fi to an extent and it kind of looks like the 90s but there's far less specific references made it's not it's it's not like clueless whatever (laughs) yeah basically yeah um so but I, I still thoroughly, I still thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, it was still a pretty good film. The the things I didn't like about it, there aren't a great deal of them. But yeah, just the I know I mentioned it earlier, but the scene where Johnny Lee Miller's handing over the copy of the yellow floppy disk that had what, the like part of the virus on it or something like yeah, Fisher Stevens like skating alongside a car. 
to then take it out of his hand at high speed and then get in the bloody car later. Like, just get in the car, drive up to him, tell him to hand over the floppy disk and then drive off. There's, there was no need for the skateboard in that, but maybe <laughs> maybe there was not enough rollerblades or there wasn't enough skateboarding in the films. Like, all oh, right, we need, to make, we need to appeal to the skateboarding demographic. So off you go. Go on, let's skate down there and grab out of his hands for dramatic effect. Like, no, get in the bloody car. That's good that we've, we've got one of your dislikes. So, you know, why, why would you drive in a luxurious limo when you can hang on to the side of it and <laughs> have, have it propel to you? <laughs> you know, is, 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 that not more, is that not normal? No, no. Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, if if that is normal, maybe maybe that's just a maybe that wasn't a thing in Scotland. Maybe everywhere else in the entire planet ever that that was how people got about during the mid nineties, holding on to the side of cars and getting propelled at fifty mile an hour. Well, Doug, it worked for Marty McFly in Back to the Future. That is a good point, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm not gonna. <laughs> Yeah, I can't besmirch those films. Those are great films. So yeah. Uh, do you do you have any other dislikes that you would like to air? I, I thought it was a bit weird that all the hackers, when they kind of got busted by the secret police or the FBI, they were always basically either out the shower or in their boxers. That just weirded me out. Like, <laughs> you know, if the FBI, if their surveillance is that good, I mean, I get it. I mean, it makes sense if you get the jump on someone at that time. That's when they're most vulnerable. They're less likely to run because they're pretty much naked and stuff but i just found it weird that these actors that were portraying 18 like teenagers were always getting busted when they were pretty much just in bed or out the shower and stuff yeah all right okay i I get it i guess but it's a bit weird (laughs) and i know i know these are really pernickety things but these are things this is how my head works and this is what i kind of pick up on when i'm watching the film like there's a lot of people in their underwear getting nabbed by the fbi I've got to say the in terms of dislikes, I really feel that the the plague was worthy of a of a better capture than yeah, yeah. his his old man disguise on the plane and which was a pretty good disguise, ish. <laughs> it, it it was it was a passable disguise, but yeah, it wasn't a believable character. I just I just wanted a a a, a better send off for for yeah. him. He was he was worth more of that, but yeah. In flipping it, in terms of like favorite parts, I really like the revolving phone booth scene. So, so <laughs> when they're in when they're in Grand Central Station and they're doing the hacking, yeah, we've we've got a, a pan shot that moves from right to left across the screen, and uh, Ian softly basically got uh, he he built on Pinewood a small version of Grand Central Station. But he mounted the phone booths that they were in on turntables, and then he had them spin. So you've you, you're seeing right. them hack, and then we're watching the phone booth spin. And for for any other reason other than it's thought it looked pretty cool. I also find it really funny when Richard Gill, who is played by Wendell Pierce, who most people will recognise as Bunk from The Wire, when Richard Gill is getting harassed by the hackers. And he oh, yeah, yeah. eventually it gets to the point where 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 Johnny Lee Miller as a zero cool crash override declares him legally dead. Yeah, th- th- those are pretty good ones. Um, I'd agree with them. They, they were pretty pretty good moments. Um, I'm trying to think what mines would have been. I have to admit, I liked the sprinkler 
thing mm. the, the, the sort of um, the kind of revenge hack as it were for being told there was an Olympic swimming pool and yeah I, I thought that was it was kind of cool like he brought a, an umbrella with him and he, he got the timing down to a T and yeah I thought that was I thought that wasn't too shabby so I quite liked that that was my favourite bit Alright, I'm going to ask for a favour because I'd, I'd like to borrow your trailer voice guy one more time. Oh, bloody hell. Okay. In the the movie, you mentioned that you quite you quite also liked how they're using hacker consultants. They're using real, real hackers and mm. they're also using techniques and methods like the, the dumpster dives and things that, that yep. hackers have been doing as well, okay? Well, there was a hacker manifesto that was written and the hacker manifesto is actually directly quoted in the film. So there's a special agent... I just I just love this. You know, I, if, I, if I wanted to be a special Secret Service agent, I want to be called this, you know, US Secret Service Special Agent Bob. <sighs> <Don't know. laughs> there, was a, there was a hacker who was known as the Mentor, and mm. his his real name is is Lloyd uh, Blakenship, but he he wrote a a few articles, and they they basically were a manifesto, and Ag- Agent Bob actually reads to one of the the other agents who who's played by Mark Antony uh, Jennifer mm-hmm. Lopez's ex husband. Yep, he reads him part of the the manifesto. So, uh, can I get you in your in your amazing trailer voice guy to say the manifesto quote please the human torch was denied a bank loan <clears throat> okay this is our world now the world of the electron and the switch the beauty of the bowed of the what the bowed <laughs> the bowed <laughs> the bowed all right okay right <clears throat> we exist without nationality skin color or religious bias you wage wars murder cheat Lie to us and try to take, try to make us believe it's for our own good. Yet we're the criminals. Yes, I am a criminal. My crime is that of curiosity. I am a hacker, and this is my manifesto. You may stop me, but you can't stop all of us. I am going to kick us off in terms of film reviews, and we've got uh, Empire. I- We've actually not heard from Empire for a few podcasts because mm. we delved into the 80s and Empire was only published in 1989. So mm-hmm. every, it's quite nice to actually have Empire back for once, <laughs> even though I still disagree with them. Empire gave the film three out of five stars and they said it's a thin plot. Certainly. And one which flounders... Well, it is a thin plot. I mean, they've nicked it from Superman 3. It's a thin (laughs) plot, certainly. And one which flounders considerably in a middle third, monopolised by dull techno-babble and untenable teen bonding. But the young cast, many making their movie debut, provide a welcome shot of vibrancy and enthusiasm. Miller, in particular, who made this before playing Sick Boy in Trainspotting, offers further evidence that he is a name to watch. While Stevens is a cackling panto villain with a tendency to get all the best lines. A plot thinner than an LCD monitor doesn't prevent the bombastic fun and the young cast help it hurtle along. There's a 
a lot of positives in there. They pick up on yeah. what we've mentioned in Johnny Lee Miller, what I like about Fisher Stevens. I think three out of five is actually quite low for what they're saying. Yeah. It seems that they have got an issue with the technical jargon. I personally didn't think the film was littered with technical uh, jargon. Maybe they just find they don't like the subplot that Acid Burn and, and Crash Override get together. I, I I don't know what their problem was there. I've certainly watched films that have had more kind of jargon in them. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, there was there was a couple of bits and pieces, but it wasn't absolutely chock-a-block, like absolutely filled to the brim with them. So I wouldn't agree with that, no. A plot thinner than an LCD monitor. Okay, there is not necessarily... I mean, it's, it doesn't take a genius to work out that the hackers are the outlaws but the good guys and the police are the corrupt system who's actually yeah. standing in their way a lot, you know, being manipulated by the by the plague. That's that's really it. That That's, that's not difficult to kind of to to follow and but but it is a clear plot and i would say mm-hmm. it's, it's thicker than an lcd monitor in fact i'd say it's about <laughs> as thick as the monitors that you saw in this in in the actual film itself yeah the boxes the boxes <laughs> the the bathtubs yeah. <laughs> well uh roger ebert gave the film three out of four stars and wrote that the the movie is smart and entertaining then as long as you don't take the computer stuff very seriously i didn't i took it approx approximately as seriously as the archaeology in indiana jones which is (laughs) fair enough that's yeah that's actually quite a good comparison i would say as well. that's a really good way to look at it i can see why the people uh, listen to the the ebert or well his website now but yeah no that's that's a pretty decent comparison and three out of four stars is yeah that's probably about right yeah, it, it, yeah. Ebert's actually been quite positive to a lot of stuff yeah. that that we've 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 looked at. I think that he sometimes can see that films can just be fun. They're 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 supposed to entertain. It's not yeah. supposed to change your outlook on life. No, every no. single time. Yeah. yeah. In the San Francisco Chronicle, Peter Stack wrote, "Want a believable plot or acting? Forget it. But if you just want knockout images." unabashed eye candy and a riveting look at a complex world that seems both real and fake at the same time hackers was one of the most intriguing movies of the year i honestly can't tell whether that is insulting <laughs> or or whether that is a genuine recommendation yeah it's, it's a bit of a weird one it seems like the start of the review sounds like it's bashing it to hell but then after it's like actually this is if this is what you're into then yeah it's definitely worth a watch but if you're into anything else then no it's the worst yeah. film ever so it's it's the most flippant yeah most flippant review i've ever read in yeah. the space of like two sentences it's almost like it's trying to say if you like superficial crap you're gonna love this movie <laughs> yeah i don't like that review at all I'd, no it's, it's a, dude, bit of a weird pick, one pick a side <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah like go, go, just give, give us your opinion like what 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 was it you got out of this yeah um USA Today gave a um, three out of four stars. Um, it was Mike Clark um, who reviewed it, and he said that when a movie's uh, premise repels all rational analysis, speed is the make-or-break component. To its credit, 
Hackers recalls the pumped up energy of Pump Up the Volume as well as its casting prowess. Now that's interesting because Pump Up the Volume is actually one of my film other film suggestions which yeah, stars yeah. Christian Slater and it's about illegal pirate radio broadcasting. Oh, all right, okay. It it explores a lot of dark themes to do with depression and teen suicide. I don't want to say any more than that, actually, because that's a really nice comparison. Pump up the volume is a is a very very good cult movie. Very good, mm-hmm. and if people haven't haven't seen it, give it a go. A great performance from Christian Slater, but also a great message for the time. You've already given some some suggestion. What was your suggestion you said earlier on? And Lawnmower Man, get that watched, people. <laughs> Lawnmower Man, you also had a know that voice. Oh yeah, I yeah, that's that's definitely worth. To be honest, it's just a a general a general documentary that's definitely worth a watch. I am gonna recommend. It's not a great movie, <laughs> but if you're a fan of Sandra Bullock and again terrible hacking. <laughs> then you give the net a go, which came out in 1995 as well. Oh, in fact, I'm, I'm getting distracted as well. Uh, that, so that's directed by Erwin Winkler, and yeah, I'll just I'll leave it at that. Have I partially redeemed 1995 for you? Well, let's uh, let's have a quick review. So, that, what else did we? What else have we reviewed? That was uh, Clueless. Clueless and Judge Dread. Oh yeah, yeah. There's still one Judge Dread as well. Yeah, you know what? Yeah, I'll say I'll, I'll, I'll say so. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, I wasn't watching these kind of films at that time, and there hasn't been a, f- a voice in the back of my head going, "You know what, Dig? You should watch more films from the mid '90s because <laughs> um, that was the absolute epitome of '90s cinema." But um, yeah, no, I, I enjoyed this one the most. It's just been pure coincidence as well that actually <laughs> three of the films that we've looked at have all came from '95. Like, it, yeah. It just it just worked out that way. That's that's good. That's really I'm I'm glad to hear that. Oh. <laughs> We're gonna change the name of the podcast. Dugan picks Ode to nineteen ninety five. Maybe there should be like a series, like you know, this is the ninety five series where all films from nineteen ninety five are reviewed, and this is the horror series. This is the yeah, but just make it really niche. If you get through, you can you can get the special ninety five ring. <laughs> Given the excessive amount of rollerblading, I think that we need to take it back to the early nineties for our next film choice, Doug. And it, if if people have seen this, I swear it's a miracle. We always say go and watch the films beforehand. Yep. And this is available on YouTube. Okay. Yeah. For for free. I mean, if that's not a seal of quality, I don't know what is. <laughs> a second seal of quality. Well, it stars Corey Haim, one of the two Corys that was in the Lost Boys. Huge eighties actor. And let's go for prayer for the Roller Boys. Sounds good. Let's do it. No, it doesn't. It sounds terrible. <laughs> there's, there's no way any film called Prayer for the Roller Boys is going to be anything 
but garbage. I'm I'm holding out for the reboot. Everything gets rebooted, so I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I reckon when Roar Boys become a thing again, because scooters seem to be a thing, so when the Roar Boys come back, I reckon there's going to be a prayer for the Roar Boys reboot, and it'll have like proper serious actors like Daniel Day-Lewis. and. Uh, <laughs> <you know. laughs> like he that, will so. have hand-sculpted his own rollerblades. <laughs> Yeah, to to prepare for the role, I spent um I spent six months in a skate shop <laughs> preparing for the role, learning the jargon. That's a date. Prayer for the Roller Boys, nineteen ninety one, directed by Rick King, probably who has went on to do nothing. But I'm, I'm, <laughs> I don't know. I can't. I'll I'll do my research. But yeah, we'll see. Yeah, we will see what happens. As ever, thanks for listening. If you've got Thank any you. suggestions, if you want to drop us an email if you want to give us feedback okay you've got the comments we've got merchandise available in our shop we're hopefully going to have some more stuff coming soon usually we do things that are tailored around each uh, podcast each film that we look at but yeah get in touch piki05 at yahoo.co.uk comment we're available on soundcloud spotify podcasts for for iphone apple podcasts so whatever platform you're listening to thanks for continuing to listen and just before we we sign out we have to do our usual end on a quote so i've got one Mm -hmm. and it had to be the plague i'm going to channel my my inner plague and um i will i will bid you adieu with this you wanted to know who i am zero cool well Let me explain the new world order. Governments and corporations need people like you and me. We are samurai. The keyboard cowboys. And all those other people who have no idea what's going on are the cattle. There is no right and wrong. There's only fun and boring. Picks out. Nice. Cool. Well, I'll finish on a Lord Nikon quote. Um, I'm not doing the voice. Zero Cool. Crashed 1,507 computers in one day. Biggest crash in history. Front page, New York Times, August 10th, 1988. I thought you was black, man. And Doug's out. (laughs) 